Welcome to the Stolen Reality Podcast. This is where you belong. All right, everybody, welcome to the Stolen Reality Podcast. It is Saturday, which means it's time for another What A Week episode, going back through the news articles throughout the week that you might have missed. I'm your host, Luke, taking you on this journey today, and I hope you guys had an awesome week and have good plans for the weekend ahead of you. Remember, if you're on the Spotify app, you can go on to the bottom of each episode, and there's a Q&A now, and you can tell me what you think was the best article throughout the week or tell me your thoughts on things. All right, so let's get right into it today. So first up, this comes from interestingengineering.com. A team of scientists from Edinburgh have engineered smart electronic skin that could pave the way for soft, flexible robotic devices with a sense of touch, according to a press release. The researchers say their stretchable e-skin gives robots for the first time a level of physical self-awareness similar to that of people and animals. So I just did a big-ass episode on Wednesday about AI becoming sentient, and one of the things that I talked about in there was when do we decide that these things are as sentient as us? And one of the big debates that's going on and one of the big uh, things that people use saying that these things aren't alive and these things aren't real is that they don't feel in the same way that we feel. And that's kind of the underlying factor is they don't have the same emotional senses, but they don't feel the world around them. Well, guess what? (laughs) Here we are. They're creating this flexible skin with little tiny sensors all over it. So when they touch the world around them, it sends them electrical signals exactly like our skin does to our brain. So that's just one step closer to us having to have this big philosophical debate that I was talking about on Wednesday of when do we give these things rights? When do we say that these things have feelings like we have? So if you didn't listen to that episode, you can go back and check it out on the episode from this week. But there's a lot of questions that come up around this. And I think that this is just adds a whole other layer to that because we have all the pieces in place for these things to be put into essentially physical bodies and be able to do everything that our bodies can do. So it's bringing up all these big questions about what it means to be human, what consciousness really is, and where we draw the lines with all these things. So it's a it's an interesting topic, an interesting debate. I would love to hear your guys' thoughts on that. So if you want to go back and listen to that episode, if you haven't heard it already, send me an email and tell me what you think about everything that's going on with AI lately. And if, uh, if these things are alive or are becoming alive, and at what point do we have to say that they're alive and validate them um, as such and, and start giving them rights? Because it's a uh, It's a lot of boundaries we're crossing here. So I'll have a link to this article with pictures. You can see these little electrode skins that they're making. Of course, I'll have a link to all these articles on my website at stolenreality.com. So you can go in and and check this stuff out for yourself. But I thought that tied in pretty well to Wednesday's episode. And then next up from militarytimes.com, we're heading up into the sky. There's a possibility that extraterrestrial motherships and smaller probes may have been visiting the planets in our solar system. This comes from the head of the Pentagon's UAP, or their Unidentified Aerial Phenomenon Research Office that they started last year. He says an artificial interstellar object could potentially be a parent craft that releases many small probes during its close passage to Earth, an operational construct not too dissimilar from NASA missions. So this has always been something we've seen in a lot of sci-fi movies, right? We have the mothership. There's Everybody knows what the mothership is, and it sends out all these little tiny probes. Well, a couple years ago, back in 2017, there was this thing going around that was called the, I'm going to butcher this, Amuamua, which was a Hawaiian term for scout. So they saw this big object that was floating by, and at first they thought it was a meteor, but 
it was moving a little bit different. It was, it was moving at a different speed than we thought it should if it was just flying uh, around using the gravity of the sun, like most meteors do. You know, they get pulled into an orbit around the sun and they fly past us, yada, yada. You understand how it works. But this thing was moving at a different rate than it should have been for its size and for its trajectory. And so that they thought it had to have other forces acting on it. So there was a big debate going around of, is this thing artificial? And it, we never really got an answer of that. They tracked it forever from, from Hawaii and then um, it kind of, you know, made its way through the news and left like everything else does because our attention spans are about three seconds. But this Pentagon director says, with proper design, these tiny probes would reach the Earth or other solar system planets for exploration as their parent craft passes by within a fraction of the Earth-Sun separation, just like Oumuamua did. Sorry if I... <laughs> Sorry if you guys are Hawaiian and I'm just butchering your language. I just am an idiot. Um, he said astronomers would not be able to notice the spray of mini probes because they do not reflect enough sunlight for existing survey telescopes to notice them. So why I think this is so interesting, for one, is that the government is now coming out and admitting that there's UFOs out there, even though they changed the name to UAPs so that they don't have to go back and say, oh, there's been UFOs the whole time. They could just say, oh, this is a new thing. That, you know, we haven't been lying. But um, so it's interesting that they're starting to rapidly disclose these things. But what's really interesting to me is last night as I was going down my conspiracy roads that I go down because... You know, how else would I start this podcast? Um, I found a video on YouTube of a man that's titled, So This Is What the Pilots Have Been Seeing. And this was posted last month in February, right around the time that all these balloon sightings, quote unquote balloon sightings, were going on. And I did an episode about that. If you want to learn more about that, you can go back to the bitisode on balloon FOs. But he has a video, and I'll put a link to this on my website. It's on YouTube, and it's a video from the space station. And it's looking down at Earth over the Arctic Ocean down by Antarctica, which is its own path to go down, that there's UFOs um, coming in and out of Antarctica all the time, and that maybe the the Nazis went down there because they sent their whole fleet of submarines down there at the end of the war and started digging. And then we sent the U.S. military down there in Operation High Jump and all these different things. And I'll do an episode about that. So if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can... Uh keep up with that later on. But Antarctica's always kind of had this conspiracy around it that there's either aliens down there or there's governments down there doing all this research with aliens and with UFOs and things like that down there. In fact, there's maybe some good evidence that during Operation High Jump, when we sent down like 4,000 US military troops down there, uh, they actually got into an aerial battle with these things. But this video shown from the International Space Station looks down over the water by Antarctica and there's just this huge fleet of hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of these white objects flying across the sky over the ocean. And, you know, of course, it's pretty high up, so you, they just look like kind of little little dots on the screen as you look at them. But I don't know what else they would be. And it was just around the time of these UFOs. So I talked about during the Balloon FO episode that maybe these things that were getting shot down all over were kind of a cover-up because the UFOs were going overhead. And so they had to say, oh, shit, people are seeing these things. We're going to send up some balloons and then shoot them down so that we can blame it on something else. And uh, from the looks of this video that came out, at like that exact same time, uh, you know, who knows? Especially with this new Pentagon report, them coming out and admitting that this could be happening. So, tying the pieces together, pretty interesting. Tell me what you think in the email at stolenreality.com under the contact page or in the Q&A answers on the Spotify app. 
And speaking of high-altitude balloons, this comes from universetoday.com. Want to soar to the stratosphere? Japan joins the balloon tourism race. So it looks like there's a new industry starting with high-altitude balloon tourism. So for $175,000, pretty soon you'll be able to take an hours-long ride in a balloon capsule that'll be 15 miles high. So you're not quite getting into space at that point, but you're pretty damn high up. They say that it's a safe, economical, and gentle ride for people. So I don't have $175,000 laying around, but... I feel like at least one of you listeners has to be some millionaire sitting out there with just too much time and money on your hands. And I feel like that we should take this ride together and do a live podcast from up there so we can get to the bottom of what's really up in the stratosphere. So reach out to me on StolenReality.com. Buy us some tickets. I'll be your date for the day. I'll keep my hands to myself. I promise. We'll just go up there and, and shoot an episode from the top of the world. It'll be the world's highest podcast. Huh? Sounds like a pretty good idea. Good promotion for both of us. Elon, Bill Gates, one of you guys, Soros, I'll, I'll hang out with you for the day. All right, moving on. So next up, Japan just found 7,000 islands it didn't know that it had. And this comes from CNN.com. So the reason why I'm bringing this up is a really good friend of mine sends me all sorts of clips about, you know, crazy stuff, because that's what we like to talk about. Um, but he sent me this thing from these flat earthers talking about how, you know, everything's a lie and that the world's bigger than they claim, you know, in a lot of circles of flat earth circles of flat earth they uh talk about how there's this ice wall around the earth that holds all the water in and beyond that there's these huge land masses and that the government covers that up because they don't want people to know that there's actually more resources out there um if you're a flat earther out there i would love to talk to you and have you on the show if you know your shit because um i am open to absolutely everything i do not believe flat earth i believe a lot of a lot of out there things but flat earth just isn't one that adds up to me but i would love to talk to somebody who really believes it you know i'm on a lot of different conspiracy sites and web pages and facebook groups and things like that and there's a lot of times that flat earth comes up and people will give really good arguments for it they'll show their math and they'll show their their supposed studies that have been done and all these calculations that have been done and it and it looks really convincing but every time i look into it a little more you know it's like okay that doesn't add up to me so i would love to talk to somebody about it who's really actually knowledgeable in a sense about that and just pick their brain and, and kind of see why it is you believe that and kind of get to the bottom of it. You know, that's what this whole podcast is about. I'm never going to claim that I'm right about anything, but I would love to discuss everything. So if you truly believe in flat earth and you think you got your research down, uh, yeah, reach out to me, get a hold of me. I'll, I'll have you on the podcast. But anyway, he sent me this video of a man claiming that this is proof of flat earth. So looking into it more, what actually happened is that over in Japan, they have upgraded their mapping and are now using digital mapping and that they mapped all the islands around them. So the last time they mapped all their islands was back in 1987, which was obviously a lot harder to do at that time because they didn't have the same kind of technology. And at that time, they thought that they had 6,852 islands, but now they have jumped that number all the way up to 14,125. So they've added over 7,000 more. They've more than doubled the amount of islands they have. And the reason for that is one, they have better technology to go out and find all these islands, but also because they are counting any naturally occurring land area with a circumference of at least 330 feet. So that's not very big, right? That's like a, a good sized little building um, sticking out of the ocean. So essentially what it comes down to is that they're able to find them more because when you go out looking for these little things, can you imagine, especially way back in the day, just drifting around on a little boat trying to find different islands? Uh, I mean, look at like what happened with the Essex where they were out at sea for these prolonged amount of time and they ended up eating each other, not knowing that there was an island like 
right next to them because it wasn't on the map at the time. So obviously as technology gets better and we have better mapping abilities, we can map things better and uh, couple that with the fact that they're adding in these little tiny, essentially rocks out in the middle of the ocean. And that's what led to them adding this plethora of new islands to Japan. So again, don't think it's any proof of flat earth. I'd love to talk to you if you are a flat earther, but Japan has doubled their island count. And then next up, this comes from BBC.com. They were digging in the desert about 280 miles south of Cairo in Egypt, and they found a little mini sphinx. So, you know, it looks just like the big sphinx. Um, and they think that there's a chance that it represents the Roman Emperor Claudius, which I don't really know how that all adds up, but I guess I don't know my history of that area well enough to, to tell you why they think that it represents a Roman emperor. But they also don't know that for sure. They're, they just found this thing, so they're doing a bunch of uh, research and they're trying to decipher the inscriptions on the side to see who this thing is. But it's pretty cool looking. It's probably about the size of an actual little dog. Um, and what's amazing to me is how they find these things. So when you come in here and look at the picture of this it's like you know this this quote-unquote temple that they found this in is pretty much just a couple rocks laying around at this point because it's been degraded over time for so long and they dug down into this little square area in this pit and found this thing so i don't know i don't know how they find these i can't imagine the amount of time and careful digging and you know you'd have to be so careful to not break something as you're just hacking through with a with a shovel which i know isn't how they do it but very very time consuming if you're an archaeologist that'd be a fun person to talk to as well but they're thinking at this point that this thing dates to around 40 to 54 AD, but again, they don't know for sure until they until they decipher what's written on it. But you can come on here and look at the pictures of this. It's pretty cool. You know, there's a little town right next to it. It'd be really neat to find something like this so close to your house, you know? You know, can you imagine just like go out your back door and your dog's digging in your yard and all of a sudden you find this amazing historical find? Um, so yeah, pretty neat. Come check it out. I'll have it linked up on my website. And maybe one of you guys has an idea of the true history of this thing. You know, I think that the big sphinx is a lot older than they say and came from times before the Egyptians. I'll talk about that when I get into my ancient civilization episode one of these days. But, you know, that whole area is just riddled in mystery. So it's always a fun road to go down. And then speaking of things in the earth, this comes from vice.com. 15 people lived 40 days in a sunless cave without clocks to study time. So they did an experiment called Deep Time, and this was over in France. And they grabbed seven women and eight men from the ages of 27 to 50, and they put them in this cave for 40 days without any sort of ability to tell time or what's going on on the outside to measure their circadian rhythms and, and their sleep patterns and everything else to kind of see, you know, what happens to a human body. So obviously these people volunteered for this. They didn't just kidnap them. And they came from, you know, all walks of life. So there was a couple people who were specialists in outdoor exploration and cave exploration, and then everybody else was kind of, you know, there's a business intelligence analyst, a jeweler, just kind of a little bit of everybody in there to get a good varied group of people. So even though they weren't able to have any contact with the outside world, their sleep patterns, social behavior, and vitals were actually monitored by a team of researchers with sensors that they had on them. And they even ingested tiny little thermometers and capsules that transmitted their body temperatures in their digestive system until they were shit out. So they, <laughs> I don't know how long those lasted. I guess it depends on each person, but they got to measure their body temperature for a day or so and until they got rid of those things. One of the people that was in the cave said it was like pressing pause and added that the feeling of sunlight and sounds of bird songs were refreshing when they came out, but she could have easily spent more time in the cave. So it sounds pretty relaxing. You know, at this point in my life, I don't know if I would mind sitting in a cave for 40 days. Probably get some good meditation. I'm pretty sure that's how a lot of religions get started is 
some guy goes off into the cave and meditates for an amount of time until he's contacted by a higher power and then comes back and preaches his word. I think that's a pretty common trope in a lot of different philosophical and religious ideologies. So maybe, uh, maybe you'd come back a little wiser than when you went in. One of the people that came out said, And here we are. We just left after 40 days. For us, it was a real surprise. In our heads, we had walked into the cave only 30 days ago. So, I guess the time distortion was about 10 days. Um, you know, that's not as dramatic as I would have expected. I would have thought they'd be like, I thought I was in there for a year, or I thought I was only in there for a couple days, you know. So not, not a whole lot of time distortion, it sounds like. There's not a lot of information in this article about what they found, so I would imagine that they're still researching how it affected these people, and they'll probably come out with more as it comes along. Sounds like a pretty cool study. I'd sign up for it. Why not? I got nothing else going on. I would just have to be able to record this podcast from the cave. You know, keep you guys informed about what was going on. And then sticking with the theme of things in the earth, this comes from sciencealert.com. These prehistoric tentacle-bearing aquatic invertebrates called bryozoans that are 500 million years old turn out that they might be something a little bit different. Seaweed. So they've... <laughs> so these... uh imprints and these fossils that they've found forever and have classified as this species may actually just be seaweed that people have been misidentifying. So it just kind of goes to show you how little we know about the past and what really went on before we were around and how we're making new discoveries every day. But you can come on here and look at the pictures of them. You know, from looking at these fossils and these pictures, it is obviously very difficult to tell what these things are. So you can see how it could be mistaken. It's kind of still up for debate if that's what's going on here. But a group of researchers think that uh, that these might have been a case of mistaken identity. So don't trust history unless you hear it here because I got all the answers. That's why you tune in, right? I'll never lead you astray unless I do, in which case then I'll apologize later. And then one more article about things we're finding in the earth. This comes from CNN.com. Scientists have revived a zombie virus that spent 48,500 years in the frozen permafrost. So I don't know how this could go wrong. It's not like viruses have had any effect on our life in the last half a decade, but, um, you know, they talk about in this article how warmer temperatures in the Arctic are obviously thawing portions of the region's permafrost, and as that happens, they find new things. Well, they found this old-ass virus, and they, of course, went ahead and thawed it out so that they can study it. This is obviously not the first time that this has happened. You know, they, they find these things all the time, like in 1997, um, over in Alaska, where they found an influenza strain that was possibly responsible for the 1918 pandemic inside of a lung sample from a woman's body that was uh, found in the permafrost. Or in 2012, when they found a 300-year-old mummified woman in Siberia, and it had the genetic signatures of the virus that causes smallpox. So it's obviously a good thing for science when they find something like this, because they can then learn more about the viruses but then when you have like the lockdown files come out you just wonder where this is all going to go and if you don't know what the lockdown files are i'll be doing an episode about that pretty soon because it's happening in real time it's a series of articles from the daily telegraph containing evidence analysis speculation comment and opinion relating to more than a hundred thousand whatsapp messages from former health secretary matt hancock and other people in the united kingdom and there's some pretty telling stuff in there like I saw one of them last night as I was looking into all this stuff of them saying to each other in these WhatsApp messages, when are we going to release the next variant? Um, so we can, <laughs> we can go down some roads with that one, but I'm going to definitely do my research before I start spouting shit off about that. But, you know, with the things that have happened in the world recently, um, it's anytime you hear the word virus, it gets kind of, uh, 
kind of raises some red flags, so hopefully they're just being responsible with science. We'll just say that. I have one of the level four biolabs, which is where they do the craziest research on the most dangerous biological agents, uh, not too far from where I live, so... Um, Hopefully, <laughs> again, hopefully they're being responsible. We all know that science never gets out of hand. Like, you know, nuclear science, atomic science, AI. We never use things for evil and, and let them uh, run rampant. So I think we'll be all right. And then with some other interesting science, this comes from LiveScience.com. We got some science heroes here. Some elementary schoolers prove that EpiPens become toxic in space. So a group of 9 to 12 year olds up in Canada were doing science projects. And they were working in coordination with NASA. And so they, you know, obviously had some resources behind them. So they were able to send things up on high altitude balloons or rockets up into near Earth orbit space. And so a group of them decided to send up EpiPens to see what would happen. And when they came back, they found some... Some pretty interesting things. After they tested them when they came back, only 87% of them contained pure epinephrine, while the other 13% had been transformed into extremely poisonous benzoic acid derivatives from the radiation. So NASA did not know this, and had they sent a EpiPen up into space and then somebody, God forbid, had to use it, it could have just poisoned them and killed them really fast. So these kids could have just saved a whole bunch of lives. So good for them, little little heroes. Hopefully, uh, hopefully each one of them gets a full ride scholarship to a university. And not just some little thank you plaque or something. Because, you know, if we got kids that smart, there's two ways it can end up. They can either turn into superheroes or supervillains. So, treat them right. Good job, kids. And then this next one comes from ScienceAlert.com as well. And this one I put in here, for one, because I find it about as interesting as anything I've ever read. But also because it kind of is an advertisement for my next bitisode next week. So one of the first bitisodes I ever wanted to do was cause and effect in a non-linear timeline. So I don't believe that time is linear and science more and more every day is starting to prove that in a lot of different ways. Um, and, you know, that's that's a big thought to contemplate what that really means and how that works out. But the idea of cause and effect if time is not linear, you know, how does that work out? What does that mean? Well, to save physics, according to this article, experts suggest we need to assume the future can affect the past. So they talk about how the quantum world kind of breaks down some of our fundamental understandings of things. And people can look at it in a couple different ways. And one of it is that it changes locality, which means our thought that distant objects need to have a physical mediator to interact. So when we see things like quantum entanglement, all of a sudden these distant objects can interact with each other um, without having anything physically helping them do that. And so that doesn't make any sense. Or it can break down our idea of realism, which is our idea that there's an objective state of affairs that kind of underlines our whole experience. So that's kind of always been the the argument of how do we rectify what's happening in quantum science, just blowing everything else out of the water. Well, now they're saying there's another option, and that's the idea of causation. So instead of destroying our idea of locality or destroying our idea of realism, it could just be that things are affecting each other backwards and forwards in time. And in this article, it gets into, you know, the evidence behind this and why they draw these conclusions. But I'm going to kind of save that because that's going to be my next bitisode. But, you know, our idea has always been that things happen sequentially throughout time. So, you know, you we can trace anything back to a cause, hypothetically. You know, this happened because this happened because this happened because this happened. But what about when we have something that we would call true coincidence? Is there any such thing as true coincidence? What about that time that you've never had roadside assistance your whole life and one afternoon, you just get this wild thought in your head that, you know, I should probably get roadside assistance. So you sign up and then 
later that day, you're driving down the highway and your car tire blows out and you need to use it. Was that a coincidence or did you get that roadside assistance because your tire blew out? And what does that mean? Does that mean that you were able to see into the future with some sort of intuition? Does that mean that all things are predetermined and there's this data grid that we can pull from? Or does that mean that the future can affect the past because time isn't linear? So there's a lot of a lot of big questions there, but it seems like they are scientifically starting to recognize that, yeah, time is not linear. In fact, that's they're not just starting to recognize that. That's been a very prominent idea in a lot of uh, circles for a very long time, but they're starting to prove it, it looks like. So I'll talk more about that next week. So stay tuned, buckle up, tell your friends. But leading up to that, of course, you can go in and read this article. It'll be linked on my website at stolenreality.com. And in a little more down-to-earth news, this comes from CNN.com. $30 million worth of Funko Pop toys will be thrown in the trash. So if you don't know what Funko Pops are, they're kind of uh, kind of like little bobbleheads. I don't know if their head's actually a bobble. I don't have any of these things, but they look like little bobbleheads. And they make them of all different characters from different shows and, you know, anything in popular media. I got a friend that collected them for a while. Um, they're kind of just cute little desktop toys, pretty much. They sit there, little action figure type things. But Funko Company said that its fourth quarter earnings report uh, were down and bad. And so how they're going to fix that is that they're going to throw away their surplus of inventory because it's costing them more to hold on to these things than it would cost them to sell them and ship them. So they're taking $30 million worth of these toys and throwing them into the landfill. What a waste. <laughs> I mean, what the hell? First of all, you want to, you know, go down the save the world environmental side of things. These are all little plastic toys. But on top of that, give them to kids, you know, but I guess that would hurt their profits because then the kids wouldn't have to buy them. But give them to, to disenfranchise kids who can't afford these things. They could save these till Christmas and do the biggest PR campaign about how they gave away $30 million worth of their products to homeless kids or something, you know, it's just, it's just ridiculous. So if you're a fan of Funko Pops, for one, I don't know, don't support them. Well, I don't know, do whatever you want. But for two, go find this landfill. You got an unlimited supply. You'll never have to buy one again. Just insane. What a what a wasteful world we live in. Jesus Christ. But on some happier news, freethink.com says the world's first cloned Arctic wolf is now 100 days old. So this cute little puppy was born in July of last year, and there was a beagle surrogate that it was his, that was its mama. So it was cloned using skin cells donated by Maya, who was an Arctic wolfhound, and they created 137 different embryos using female dog's eggs. And then they transferred 85 of the embryos into seven different beagle surrogates. And then one of them gave birth to this little puppy. And... Of course, it's a puppy, so it's just cute as shit, because that's how they are. But yeah, we have full living cloned mammals, and it's making it pretty well so far. So back when they cloned the sheep, you know, that was the big thing uh, a couple years ago. When was that? 2017? Nope, not even not even close. 1996. Okay, so back way back in 1996, they cloned, uh, they cloned the sheep. And obviously cloning has become much more advanced since then. So I am a pretty firm believer that they clone humans in some places that they don't want us to know about. But they just prove every day that it is a possibility. I don't know how I feel about this, to be honest. Um, you know, it's another one of those controversial topics that goes right back to that AI episode that I did on Wednesday. What does it mean to be alive? What does it mean to be conscious? What does it mean to have a soul? What does it mean to be human? You know, so there's all these ethical questions that get brought up, but they do show that we have the capability of doing it. I mean, I have a half wolf, half husky. That is the best dog ever made. I'm sorry if you have a dog, but my dog's just better. And, uh, 
I mean, I don't know if when she gets old, I don't know if I if I had the choice if I would clone her. Um, that's a that's a tough decision. I I don't think I would, but people do it. I mean, there's there's celebrities who clone their dogs when they die. I think I read a report a little while ago about some famous person. I forget who it was, but they cloned their dog like seven times up to this point. Sounds to me like they need to do better at keeping their dog alive, but it's a, it's a crazy world we're living in. You know, I talked on the AI episode about people that I talk to that say, well, these things aren't alive. And I say, okay, well, do you have a right to shut them down? They go, yeah, because they're not living. They're not real like us. Okay, well, what if we take these AI chatbots that have access to the internet and can learn through neural networks and then put them in a cloned body? Then do you have a right to kill them? And, uh, you know, there's no real answer to that at this point because we're just, we're just getting into this area. But you put those two things together, which they pretty much have the capabilities of doing at this point. Um, you know, they not not quite, but I would imagine I would imagine they do on the non-public sector. And we're we're getting into some crazy territory. The only thing that really matters when it comes down to this AI argument is when is somebody gonna hook up one of these open source AIs that can have full conversations to my KTM Adventure motorcycle. Cause I want kit from Night Ride. I mean, if, if I'm going to be a superhero, that's a necessary step. And nobody's offered to do it for me yet. I know that you guys can do it. One of you tech-savvy people out there, get a hold of me. Let's do this. It'll be groundbreaking. I want to talk to my motorcycle. Write me under the contact page at StolenReality.com. I'll pay you in beans. That's about all I got. And next up, this comes from the NewYorkPost.com. Tinder launches dating dictionary to decode Gen Z language for older singles. <laughs> so if you're anybody over the age of 30, you know that you can't keep up with slang anymore. You know, I remember when I was a kid thinking that my parents were so old because they wouldn't know what words I was using. And here I am, have to <laughs> have to Google things sometimes because I don't know what the fuck people are talking about. So it looks like Tinder's launching a dictionary so that older people can know what younger people are talking about on their dating profiles. Now, my opinion on that is if somebody's young enough that you don't understand their language, probably don't date them. I don't think you're going to have a lot in common, but hell, who knows? I, I don't know. Don't listen to me. I haven't been on a date in seven years. So, uh, so maybe I don't have the best dating advice, but, uh, pretty, pretty funny that language can evolve so fast that one generational gap and we aren't even able to understand each other half the time. You know, I watched a really interesting reel that popped up on my Facebook last night about the Southern accent and where it came from and this person was going through all the different southern accents and how they evolved from the british accent and they said you know because people came over from europe and then made their way to port towns and then down through the south and what they would do is they would do a southern accent from you know texas or or georgia or or different areas all over the american south and then they would speed it up and all of a sudden it sounded like different European accents and they were explaining how those things came to be. And the closer you get to the coastline, the closer they are to that European accent. And then as it made its way down, it changed and got more of a Southern drawl, you know, until you hit different areas like Louisiana, where when you speed those up, it turns into French because there's a big French influence. So it's really interesting, you know, the, uh, the evolution of language is something that's always blown my mind, especially how it affects the way that we think. You know, our language affects the way that we think. There's uh, something that I heard about a while ago, and don't quote me on this because I'm spouting this off the top of my head, but it was something like there's a tribe, I think somewhere in Africa, who doesn't have a word for regret. And because of that, they don't understand the idea of regret. Like they don't understand the idea of not having done something they wish they would have done. Because they, they don't have a way to express it. So because of that, their mind doesn't work that way. One of, one of my favorite movies is Arrival with, uh, what's her name? Beautiful redhead. Amy Adams. Um, the whole 
premise around that movie and you know skip ahead if you don't want it spoiled spoiler alert aliens come down and they're trying to communicate with them so they get this linguistics expert to go and try to communicate with them well the only way they're communicating is these aliens are essentially like projecting this symbol out and it just shows this big symbol well she starts deciphering it and seeing that this symbol it's a circle with all these different points coming off it and of course it looks different every time they put out a different thing but what she finds out is that when they speak they don't speak in a linear sentence which goes back to what we were just talking about time being linear they speak all all at once and because of that their minds work all at once and they can see forward and backward in time so as her mind starts to understand this language it starts skipping around in time because our mind is built around the language that we use it's it's just it's a really really interesting idea it's one of my favorite movies go check it out if you haven't seen it it's called arrival with amy adams well that's not the name of it it's called arrival and amy adams is in it but uh yeah, it's the way language affects us and the way that we think is so overlooked. And that gets down a lot of other roads as well, like when they use language specific ways in media and how cults use specific language and religions use specific language and governments use specific language because it literally trains the way you think. You know, in a recent episode I listened to on the Jordan Peterson podcast, he was talking about a study that was done where he had his students uh, choose a viewpoint on a political subject and then write a argument for the opposing viewpoint. So if they believed one way, they had to write an argument from the opposing viewpoint. And then he waited like a week. And then when he when they came back, he asked them about that again. And there was this dramatic change in their viewpoint. After they had written an argument for the opposing side, it actually guided their beliefs towards that side. And, you know, the argument he was making is that we have to be really careful about our language and what we say and do because it builds the way that we think. But that also goes back to the Mindset Monday that I did and I think two weeks ago. You know, how much time do you actually spend looking at opposing viewpoints? Because if you only look at one viewpoint of something, you build your mind in that way. And you have to be able to look at both sides to be able to make a rational argument and really have a true opinion about something. Because otherwise, you're just programming yourself or getting programmed by, by what you're seeing. So make sure that you're, you're looking at all sides of every story. Even the things I tell you. You can trust me, but only so far as I can trust myself. So think about that. And last up for today, this comes from futurism.com. Scientists turn dead birds into ghoulish drones that can actually fly. And then it says in quotation, sometimes you don't want people to find out that this is a drone. So there's been this fake conspiracy that got started a long time ago by this comedian style guy called Birds Aren't Real. And he went on talk shows and there's a website for him and there's there's uh, merchandise and all this thing. But he started this fake conspiracy that kind of grew from there. I, I don't know if some people actually believe it. I would imagine that some people do because people believe everything. But that birds aren't real and they're all just these government drones. Well, guess what? They're doing it. <laughs> like They say that it, you know, is is tough at this point because uh, there's a lot that goes into it, but they say it actually helps out in a lot of ways because they don't have to like design wings and stuff. They're already perfectly designed by God. So, um, so they're using taxidermied bird parts from pigeons, pheasants, hummingbirds, and crows, including their real head feathers and most importantly, their wings. So they're not quite putting these up in the air yet, but I'm sure it won't be long. Once again, conspiracy theories turn into reality. So, you know, when you're when you're out there, watch the skies, watch what you say, because those birds that are landing on your car could not be birds. 
All right, with that, guys, I'm signing off for the day. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you found these articles interesting. I'll have them all linked up on my episode notes on stolenreality.com. Go in and read them for yourself. Tell me what you think. Email me or or answer the Q&A on the Spotify platform. And wherever you're listening from, go in and give me a good rating if you don't mind. Helps me out. I would greatly appreciate it. You can follow me on TikTok and Instagram at Stolen Reality Podcast. This weekend, I'll be working on making a Facebook community page. So I will let you guys know, and that's live, and you can follow on there as well. I'm going to make that a community page so that everybody can post anything they want about anything within reason. <laughs> Keep everything within reason. So I hope you guys had an awesome week. Hope you got a good weekend planned ahead of you. And you'll be hearing from me on Monday for Mindset Mondays and right back at the normal routine. All right, guys, have an awesome weekend.